Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Living Room Logic Welcome to Living Room Logic, a place for you to chill out and have a laugh with two scientists who know too much about very, very little. This episode, I interview Dr. Liz Ryan, who is a talented immunologist and a passionate educator in the University of Limerick. We discuss the COVID-19 pandemic a year after it hit the Western world. What lets the COVID virus cause a pandemic and how scientists have developed a vaccine and tested its safety in record times. Don't be an anti-vaxxer and follow the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Come find us on Instagram or Twitter or other social media that your great aunt shares misinformation on. Sit back and enjoy this contagious consultation. Okay, so do you want to introduce yourself. I'm Liz Ryan. I'm an immunologist. So I study the immune system. And I've been studying the immune system for 20 years. I have a PhD in vaccine immunology, um, looking at uh, pediatric vaccinations. Oh, wow. Um, And I've worked in infectious diseases and autoimmunity and cancer immunology in um, a number of different disciplines in universities and in industry and also now I am teaching at at the University of Limerick where I work um, in the biological sciences department and teach on the bioscience program there. That's um, that's really lucky and potluck for us because I didn't actually know you got your PhD in vaccine immunology. Yes so I did my PhD looking at how you could possibly formulate vaccines to deliver them up your nose to generate better um, mucosa, like immune responses at the site of infection. To, you know, so if you breathe in a, um, a virus or a bacteria or ingest it, just try and get a better lung or gut immune response. It's still something that hasn't really gone mainstream very much. There's one nasally delivered flu vaccine, but by and large vaccines are still injected into your arm. That's really interesting because yeah. uh, even with a nasal spray, it's a lot less invasive. It's inv- less invasive, yeah. so um, it's obviously much more popular. Of course, <laughs> of course. A, uh, less, a little bit less pain. Um, but also it provokes your natural immune response, you know, in your airways and in, you know, the antibodies where you need it. So it, it more closely reflects um, your immune response to the actual virus. But there, there are difficulties in it. the reason why it hasn't become mainstream is because it's actually quite challenging to do mm. this. Um, and we know a lot more about um, how to deliver a vaccine in, a, in an injection. Yeah, so, of course. That makes and it makes sense. It's really cool. We should have, we'll definitely have to pop back at that towards the end when we're talking about <laughs> vaccinations. That's really cool. Um, anyway, I think we'll, we'll crack into, you know, talking about um, the big baddie in the room of COVID and the what's what's been terrorizing our stay at homes for months now. Um, and yeah. I, the, the first question is, um, <laughs> what gave COVID the 
ability to become a pandemic as opposed to because at the end of the day covid's a flu isn't it it's a virus it's a and when you get viruses normally it will knock you off your feet you'll be stuck on a couch you know be stuck with a mug of lemsip or hot seven up you know your choice you know getting spoiled at home but um what's the difference that makes covid a pandemic flu okay so it's a pan well it's it's not as Strictly speaking, a flu, it's a okay. respiratory infection. Mm -hmm. Flu, it refers to influenza. Okay. And influenza also has the potential to become a pandemic. But what you're asking is the difference between what makes me sick as a person when I get a virus. Mm -hmm. So for all intents and purposes, COVID-19 is just like any other virus that you could potentially get. The reason that it's causing so much chaos and caused a pandemic, which means it's infecting globally people, is because it's new. It's because it's a novel virus that's just recently emerged. And nobody on the planet had any immunity against it. So it goes beyond just you sitting on your couch. It has the potential to make everybody in the world sit on okay. their couch because, there's, because it can just spread. Other sort of seasonal flu or seasonal colds that you may get, which can also be caused by coronaviruses, um, these are less likely to cause a pandemic because they have, you know, been previously out in the human population and we've developed immunity to them. So while it may cause illness and outbreaks in individuals, it won't necessarily spread to the extent that COVID-19 has. Okay. Um, but these things, like the virus, there are coronaviruses that cause colds. So one of the common cold viruses is a coronavirus called OC43. And that has been in, around circulating for over 100 years. Oh, wow. Okay. There is some hints to think that it may have caused a pandemic in 1890. Oh my God. Okay. Right. Um, so that killed about a million people back in 1890. It was, there was a similar kind of respiratory um, pandemic mm -hmm. at that point. Um, scientists think it was this coronavirus, but it has evolved with us since then. And now it, because we have immunity against it, it only causes a mild mm. outbreaks and smaller flu like symptoms in smaller numbers of people that's really interesting so it because i i don't know i suppose um in my head and a few people i was talking to i thought that um it was more so that the virus was just so contagious that uh, it, it had an, a special ability to spread but it's almost more so that everyone's a blank slate so it can what's well, a blank slate but it also so there's two sides i suppose there are two sides to this okay, coin. Yeah. there's the we all are just open to it and we have no immunity but also this virus has some really sneaky properties that make it a very good virus causing a pandemic. Good. Um, <laughs> it, it, it has quite a long incubation period. So you can get this virus without displaying symptoms and carry it and spread it okay. before you start to display symptoms. There can be people who are asymptomatic and don't get any symptoms and unknowingly spread it. Mm. So that also allows it a bit of time for it to spread. The original SARS virus, on the other hand, that um, also originated in Asia and spread um, back in the early 2000s, that was a little bit different and more easily contained because it was that bit more um, 
pathogenic, a bit more mm. cause disease quicker. Yeah. So it was easier to isolate people because they displayed symptoms much faster. Okay. It was actually more dangerous and had a higher mortality rate than the current virus. But the current virus escaped and yeah. we couldn't, and it wasn't, it, it, we weren't able to contain it. Yeah, okay. So it's, it's a combination of those things. Wow, um, that's a perfect storm. <laughs> yeah, it is a perfect storm. It is. Um, and it makes total sense. So when you say the incubation period, that's the uh, it, it's just sitting in you before it's actually making you aware that you're sick. Yeah. So you get a couple. So if you when you inhale some viral particles, they come into your system and they will attach and go into your cells and start replicating. Mm -hmm. So it takes a little bit of time for there to be enough virus in your system for it to start causing symptoms and for it to start causing disease. So the speed at which the virus replicates is that lag time between being exposed to the virus and displaying symptoms. Wow, that's... Um... Because the symptoms, is, the symptoms are, are a result of your immune system trying to fight the virus. Okay, that that's really, really interesting. So you're saying it's it's less aggressive. And since it's less aggressive, it's sneaky, sneaky, <laughs> sneaky, <laughs> sneaky. Wow, that yeah, and, and that does make sense. And just because it's something that I was wondering as well, where we're also afraid of um, maybe if you're the person who's carrying it, and you're the person who's walking around and you need to look after yourself and make sure you're not exposing yourself to people. And especially with coronavirus, as, as far as I know, with COVID, it's people are afraid of giving it to their parents. Yeah. They're afraid that that's the fear factor, because you, when at least you look at the stats, I am, it, it seems to be the elderly who are really struggling with that. And that's something I was thinking about. And I was kind of thinking, oh, well, the elderly are vulnerable and they're a yeah. vulnerable group. But then I kind of asked, why are they? What makes someone elderly? particularly vulnerable and i don't know okay so this is all to do with the fact that this is a new virus mm -hmm. so nobody's immune system has seen this before now young people particularly children they have never seen any virus before apart from what they've been immunized with or what they may have come in contact with you know as they're growing up children and young people's immune systems are really alert and able to adapt very quickly to new things and they still have all the, you know, they're, they're very able to respond quickly. As you age, you use, lose the ability to respond to new things. Mm -hmm. And you rely more on the memory of, you know, recall response to things that you've seen in the past. So older people will have better responses maybe against flus or things that they've seen in the past, but they're less adept at quickly responding to new things. So it's because the coronavirus is new that they are very slow at mounting a good immune response to it. That's really interesting. So it's like kids are, since I suppose kids don't have a, the younger you are, the less experience you have. And that's even going with the immune system. So again, as you, as you get older, you're starting to rely on immune memory. Okay. Um, your bone marrow isn't as active as it used to be. And you, you, you're, the rate of formation of new immune cells sort of slows down a little bit. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so that and that does that does make a lot of sense. So this is the you know the younger people they can react to it much stronger, and the elderly they maybe have a slower response or maybe a a weaker response to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then at that point, when people are getting sick, how is it actually treated? Because if the if the immune system itself isn't able to fight it off how do you take patients and and, okay. and help charge it okay so this is this is the complicated part so <laughs> um individual whether you're young or old underlying risk factors 
all of these things play into how your immune system responds to and recognizes the virus. When your immune system recognizes and responds to that virus, it can go a number of different ways. Um, so you can have a good protective response that will kill the virus quite quickly. And this happens in people who don't really get that. You, you know, a lot of people will have very mild disease and won't mm -hmm. display too many symptoms. Their immune response controls the viral infection without too much fallout. However, you have people who just start to get very severe immune responses against the virus mm -hmm. that almost go over the top. So they get this excessive pro-inflammatory response that the virus triggers. Mm -hmm. And this is, these are people then who end up like really struggling to breathe and need to be, need to go to ICU and get extra help. So it's this really over, over activation of an inappropriate pro-inflammatory response that needs to be treated. Um, so there are a number of different therapies and different approaches that um, have been developed over the last year that have given us extra tools to treat people with severe COVID-19 disease. So there's a number of different strategies. So you may have heard about um, the Regeneron antibodies that uh, Donald Trump got when he was oh. um, hospitalized. Mm -hmm. So what this is, uh, they're um, recombinant or like manufactured antibodies against the virus. So these manufactured antibodies can be infused into a patient early on in the course of disease and stop the virus binding to the cells and stop them re viral replication, you know, stop the virus getting in. The virus has to get into your cell to reproduce itself. So if you can block that with an antibody, it delays viral replication and allows you a chance to recover okay. more quickly. So that's one strategy that has had a certain amount of success and is being trialed. But other very important approaches include the use of steroids, for example, the drug dexamethasone, mm -hmm. um, which is a very commonly available steroid. And that's really effective at dampening down the inflammation that the virus causes. And this allows the body chance to recover and, you know, get function back in your lungs so you can breathe more easily. Mm -hmm. And there are other drugs for example, drugs that are used to treat diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, where you have a similar overactivation of your immune response. So some of these anti-inflammatory drugs are being now used to treat COVID patients with some degree of success. So this helps to get people out of ICU faster. So that's re really important. So they really are the, the things that are most promising at the moment. There have been a few other um, suggestions of drugs that haven't been as successful um, and people have also tried to infuse patients with convalescent plasma mm -hmm. so from people who have recovered from COVID you will have antibodies in your system um, and if you could get an infusion from someone else of their antibodies it could potentially help block the virus replicating um, but that's very difficult to control to regulate and to do in this in a very controlled way so that hasn't been super successful um but the anti-inflammatories have so so really a lot of the treatments aren't actually treating covid itself it's almost giving the body a time yeah it's giving it time because the immune response is actually it's like playing catch-up it's trying to nuke it and you're caught yeah. in the crossfire and yeah. Okay, so it, it is two different treatments. It's the trying to reduce your immune system response and the trying to slow down the viral replication. 
I mean, there's also active research going on looking at um, antiviral drugs to target the viral replication specifically. But I'm not aware of any of those that are used successfully. Um, mm -hmm. There's quite, but there's huge amounts of research effort ongoing and has been like the research in the last year has been amazing. It's been exceptional, um, yeah. It's been difficult to keep track of everything. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. I can only imagine. Um, though that's another, that's a positive that's come out of it. That there has actually been funding given and I'm sure all of this um, research will be carried forward for things that are good. And, you know, it, the investment is there, you know, the investment in infrastructure and in technology. So it shows how important research in understanding basic mechanisms of mm. inflammation and response to infection is. It's great. Now with the treatment, um, the, the, the new thing going on with COVID is the new strains going around mm. and how the new strains are more infectious and they're causing more things like that to happen. Are the treatments impacted by that? A lot of the treatments I talked about, like this, they're host directed. So they're really about um, targeting the host inflammatory response. So they will work just as well in, in independently of the viral um, virus mutations. But it's important to know viruses mutate. All viruses mutate. What a virus is, is essentially um, a strand of nucleic acid, which is like a series of letters wrapped up in a little coat <laughs> and that needs to go inside your cell and it uses then the, your cells to replicate itself. Now this nucleic acid is like a, a series of letters mm -hmm. um, as it replicate, as it, you know, photocopies this code, it makes mistakes um, and there isn't a good spell checker. <laughs> okay. So there's constantly these little mutations are constantly being introduced as the virus replicates. The virus will replicate a huge amount in a, in a person. Some of these are harmless. They make very little difference. And some of them help the virus adapt better to the host. So it's kind of if what, what the new strain would be then is one of these mistakes that actually was beneficial for the virus to spread. It was somehow um, gave the conferred some advantage that this particular error, those viruses were fisher and could replicate more easily. Okay. And regarding this new strain, should we be more concerned? Like, uh, how how has it changed the dynamic? Uh, still to be determined now how this will play out, I'm not sure. But viruses okay. mutate. It, it so far looks like it could change the transmissive, how easily it's transmitted. So this virus replicates a little bit faster. Okay. Um, so there's more copies of, of it, as then when you sneeze, you release more of the virus so it can transmit more easily. And maybe latch onto your cells a little bit, <laughs> a little bit firmer. So far, it hasn't changed the structures to the extent that it will impact the anti you know the immune response or your antibodies that the vaccine will provoke but mutations are not always bad so like the previous virus i talked about the oc43 mm -hmm. over time that has mutated to make it less less dangerous well that's good um, so viruses actually want to live kind of more in harmony with their hosts if they kill us off they've no one to transmit to to use <laughs> so 
So they want to kind of come to an equilibrium with their host. So over time, it's likely that these mutations will accumulate. And I don't think we will declare the world COVID free in two years. Mm-hmm. It's more likely that over time we gain herd immunity because of the vaccine, because of previous infections. Mm-hmm. And now it just sort of, it continues to mutate and just, we sort of learn to live with each other. Yeah. <laughs> These new neighbours that we have to share the, the street with, I suppose. Yeah. Um, just, 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 uh, you mentioned vaccines there. Um, could you just, um, mention how they actually work? Like, like how does the COVID vaccine actually help you? So this is all about memory. Okay. So I mentioned that the older people have immune memory to lots of different things. A vaccine essentially educates your immune response to generate antibodies so that you have memory cells in your system that when you see the virus for real, they are switched, you know, they're recruited really quickly and you get lots and lots of antibody produced very fast. So it takes, you know, two, three, four weeks to get good antibodies the first time you you see something. So the first, the first dose of the vaccine will take two or three weeks to start making, you know, so you, before you start making good antibodies. Mm-hmm. But the next time you see it, you get antibodies much faster. So within two to three days, you'll have antibody and much higher levels of antibody and much better antibodies that bind really tightly to their target. So for the vaccines, you get one shot and then two or three weeks later, you'll get a second shot so that then by the time you actually see COVID in reality, you'll have really good memory responses built up so that you'll have antibodies to call on very quickly. That's really interesting. So in a normal situation, if you were exposed to COVID, your body would kind of be living with COVID for up to two weeks before you could really begin putting together a defense. So the immune system has a couple of layers to it. Mm -hmm. So when COVID comes in, first of all, it triggers what's called your innate immune response. So these are, you know, the first inflammation responses. So that early inflammatory response that can sometimes escalate out of control, that happens very fast. Mm-hmm. But what takes time are what's called the adaptive immune response. So these are the, the, the cells of your body that makes antibodies and cellular T cells that will come in and actually kill the virally infected cells. So that takes a bit of time for those to you know, to become educated and switched on. Okay. And you you really need those, that second arm of the immune response to be activated to clear clear the viral infection. Okay. So 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 what the vaccine's doing is when you just face COVID, it can take up to two weeks to actually activate that second phase, that memory phase. But with yeah. the vaccine, it's happening in a it's accelerating that. Yeah. It's yeah. accelerant. So in that incubation phase where you don't have symptoms, you're with a vaccine, your body's already reacting. Exactly. Okay, that's yeah. really, that's really interesting. So, uh, but but does that mean then, even if you're vaccinated, you can still be a carrier of the yes, virus? Yes, you can. Okay. So, um, the virus can still go into your mucosal, the, the linings of your nose and breathe in into your upper respiratory tract. So you can still carry the virus and still have low levels of virus, even if you are vaccinated. It's very unlikely that you'll completely wipe it out. Yeah, okay. (laughs) 
this would be one of the advantages of having a locally delivered vaccine that could mm. help kill virus particles in your in your nose and yeah. upper respiratory tract quicker it'd be very direct be yeah right at the front line yeah. so 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 if, if we're still kind of carrying it that means that at least for the next while masks won't be going away will they masks and social distancing will be with us for some time to come yeah yes okay yeah yeah. and the masks they um do they just catch the virus like a net they like i i don't is it that the when you're wearing the mask it's just that it the virus doesn't spread quite as well well what the fire what the masks do is they really make a barrier to stop the area to which the virus can spread into okay Okay. so when you cough or sneeze you form droplets Mm -hmm. the little droplets expect you know if you if you have no mask on the droplets will actually spread over quite a wide area you'd be quite Mm -hmm. frightened to see the (laughs) the radius of your droplets so you can spread you know quite widely if you have no mask on so what the mask does it stops the spray of droplets going into a wide area around you. The majority of masks don't have pores small enough to actually stop the virus getting out. Okay. But what they will do is they'll stop the droplets that carry the virus. Okay. 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 So it's kind of like if between like a, let's say a two meter social distance plus a mask, it means even when you're normal breathing, your breath just doesn't go as far. It's muzzled. It doesn't go as far and the, you know, it's stopping the drop, big drops from getting out. Okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you can see it's not it's not sterile. It's not keeping mm-hmm. anything from going. It's not, but it's really helping. And it's helping keep things within this small radius around you. So if you have your mask under two meters, it's very unlikely that something will get beyond that. Mm-hmm. Okay. A mask doesn't replace social distancing. Mm. You need both. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you know the mask will help keep the virus within two meters of you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then if you know you just don't want people coming within that space either, and then that will help. Okay, and the last question I want to ask is something that um, I know it's come up in a lot of uh, conversations I've had with friends, and it's now that we're kind of on the the hill that we're all looking to when we're going to get vaccinated. There's an edge of fear in people because it's it's fast and it's been very quick, the, yeah. this research that's come out. And um, what, what I want to ask is, like, how does that process work? And how are the vaccines tested for safety to be administered? Okay. Uh, exhaustively, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good. Um, I, like, I previously worked in a vaccine company, so I have a little bit of experience of seeing firsthand how cautious vaccine companies are because they do realize unlike drugs that treat sick people to make them better vaccines go into healthy people (laughs) to stop them getting sick so the last thing you want are vaccines that will cause any adverse events you know so you want to make sure that they are as safe as possible this vaccine was quick because there was unprecedented global funding Mm -hmm. uh, cooperation and need for the vaccine to be quick all the stages have been gone through you know all the normal research and development phases have been gone through 
but they have been accelerated because they've run some of them concurrently um, and they have had way more funding and resources at their disposal than they usually would. Um, in general, a vaccine to develop a new vaccine, you would stop between each of these phases, have to look for more funding, have to check the market is still there. Mm -hmm. um, but there's been an unprecedented demand, unprecedented resources, money, um, like the whole world just needs these vaccines. The, the technologies that they have used, even though they haven't been broadly used before, are not super new. They have been around for a long time and have been researched very thoroughly. So the mRNA technology has been used previously for Ebola and Zika vaccines. Okay. Um, and the other vaccine um, backbones, similar to the um, Oxford virus, the AstraZeneca virus, that is on a viral vector, an adenoviral vector. Okay. Um, these, this class of vaccine has been researched thoroughly for 20 years. Mm. So there's a huge expertise and knowledge from years of vaccine research that's been going on behind the scenes, often quite underfunded. Yeah. Um, that has, we, we have been, a, industry and companies have been able to draw on this knowledge. Yeah. So, so even mm. though it's been fast, it hasn't skipped key steps and the trials have been um, performed in large numbers of people and you know, the same safety checks done as you would always expect. Yeah, and it, it, like tens of thousands of people. Yeah. So um, now another thing that that comes out that uh, I think people would be interested in is you see like a 90% effective and 95% effective. And uh, how, do, how do they actually figure that out? Like, um, do because how do you, because like you said, you're putting this into healthy people. Mm. Um, you can't then give them COVID and see what happens. You could. Oh, well, you could, but I, I, I don't think they'd be signing up for it then. It's it was discussed. Um, really? so that, that that's what's called a, a called a vaccine challenge trial, where wow. you would have volunteers who would um, you would vaccinate them and then expose them to the pathogen, and to see who who would be protected, and that's a way of accelerating vaccine development. Mm. It's usually only done for diseases where you have a treatment, a very effective treatment. So it was considered unethical to do that for COVID okay, well, because yeah. we didn't know enough about it to expose people deliberately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what they so what they would have what they did um, in early stages would in, would be to inject people with the trial vaccines and look at the immune responses that individuals make. So you can check that they are immunogenic, that they are provoking mm. antibodies, and you can measure that in the lab. So you can take blood samples and you can see that they're developing protective antibodies. And you can trial that in a dish to see if they can latch onto a neutralize antibody or viral um, infection of cells. So you can see if they're neutralizing antibody. Um, and then they did placebo controlled trials. So they did these trials in areas of the world that currently had active circulating COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a placebo arm and a vaccine. So that meant there'd be a, one large group of people vaccinated, another large group of people not vaccinated. Um, they didn't tell them who, who 
who was vaccinated or not, because that would very likely change your behavior. If you thought, oh, I'm vaccinated, I can take more risks. Of course. Maybe. Mm -hmm. So you don't know if you have the real vaccine or the placebo and you're asked just to carry on about your normal life. Um, then over a defined period of time, they would look at um, who had clinically proven COVID infections. So the, the volunteers would be screened and checked to see who had the virus. Um, and they found that viral infection primarily happens in the placebo group. Okay. And there was hardly any severe COVID infections in the vaccination group. Okay, so that's how okay. they check the numbers that are... Oh, that's really yeah. interesting. That's really um, interesting. And the, the studies for the Pfizer vaccine trials and the Moderna vaccine trials, in fact, similar technology, gave very similar results, which was really encouraging, I think. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, I definitely look forward to getting that needle in my arm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and get, get, get that into me. And, uh, it'll be it'll, it'll be a good feeling to uh, it, it feels like a, a positive step. It'd be like, oh, vaccination. We're getting yeah. there. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're getting there. Like we might still have masks and a bit of being careful with social distancing for a while. But at least once we have the vaccination, there'll be a, an edge of an edge off of it, I, I hope. Yes, well, it's hopefully I mean, obviously, at the moment, the, the, the situation in hospitals with people with very severe disease is very it's horrible to see. So yeah. really, we want to do everything we can to stop that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, which, which is, uh, isn't that why the um, health professionals, they're getting it first, because yeah. they were, if you're working with people who are constantly at high risk, everyone, a doctor in a hospital and a nurse that would be working with someone, they're already sick. The last thing you need is to have people who could be carrying significant amounts of COVID. That's, yeah, so it's, it's to keep... It's, it's obviously important for the healthcare professionals to keep them healthy, but also to stop them in potentially infecting the sick people that they're minding. Yeah. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. Well, I can't wait for that to uh, them to get through all of them and to get to everybody else. <laughs> and I'm sure that everyone could uh, agree with. Well, uh, yeah. well, Dr. Liz Ryan, thank you so much for that uh, brilliant, brilliant amounts of information there. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome, Andrew. It's lovely to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you, too. I crawl out of bed and ride into a shirt. Walk three meters to my desk to go to work. I have ten cups of tea a day to keep me awake. Up and down those bloody stairs, the only journey that I make. Should I take up running or play online board games? Maybe learn to knit or sew or write a book or go insane. Because if I have to listen to the news, the bad, the good, then I'll go insane, become a preacher if I could. Cause this is your World War Three soldier, please step in Not drafted to fight Germans, but the germs and you will win You're stationed with your family, don't drive them round the bend And if you have a problem, that's your problem in the end Don't clap for nurses, they're too busy to hear Maybe next time you cast a vote, you will think of them The same goes for researchers, not as loaded as you think Students working 50 hours for 200 a week of the world leaders, there is a divide Those saving the economy and letting people die And if you think this is 5G or some other conspiracy Next time you're at the pharmacy 
buy condoms. Please don't pass your jeans, cause this is your World War III soldier. Please step in, not drafted to fight Germans, but the germs that you will win. You're stationed with your family, don't drive them round the bend. And if you have a problem, that's your problem in the end. This isn't really Nam, Iraq, or Korea. You're sitting on your hole complaining about the media. The people who have died for the life you have, they dream to come in home, and many never have. So get a grip and stay at home. Sorry, your hair's a mess. Maybe go and buy a comb. And hell, maybe you're right. The world will never be the same. But you know what I really think? I don't think that that's a shame. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.